This is the Boxing Betting Show with Tom Craze. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Boxing Betting Show. My name is Tom Craze. Now, with a bumper pay-per-view weekend ahead of us, I thought I'd put together a show to match. This week, we have not one but two special guests on the show, which I think in part is a knock-on effect of me getting sick of the sound of my own voice while recording solo in the last episode. My first guest actually doesn't need too much introduction. I'm sure he'll be a familiar voice and face to most of you by now. I'm very pleased to welcome onto the Boxing Betting Show, Chris Lloyd. How are you, Chris? Thanks, mate. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Just in uh, just in quarantine, got tested early today and then um, should get my uh, fourth set of results tomorrow morning when I wake up. I should have sort of prefaced the um, the introduction I gave you there, actually, with, with a note to say that you're probably the... I think you're probably Southeast England's most elusive man. Um, for anyone listening, I've been chasing Chris to um, to come on the show probably since mid-early lockdown, I think. Um, and he, he's kind of managed to escape my grasp until he was backed into a biosecure compound somewhere in, in Essex. Uh, and, and there's literally no escape now. So I've kind of guilted him into doing it a little bit. But um, yeah, you're, you're trapped now, mate. I just thought I'd save, I'd save the best to last i mean the biggest week of fight camp and i thought who am i going to give the exclusive to tom Gray's, and here we are so you know look at it whatever way you want we're here and i was going to say I'm gonna, i'll give you as much as i can but i mean we're at the holiday Inn in brentwood so you know yeah, do uh yeah. temper your expectations a little bit it's an episode of alan partridge really isn't it um... <laughs> well i've actually got i've actually got a corby trouser press in my room so i believe that yeah yeah. yeah, I actually have. So just to give you a, a sort of reference point for like how old the rooms are. Um, they're, they're the kind of rooms that probably only just had the, the do not smoke signs removed from the rooms. But it's comfy, the rooms are big. And um, yeah, I, I don't mind at all. But it's, you know, you get treated very well by matching. The rooms are normally sort of, you're in like a four or five star hotel. Yeah. And I guess you get used to it. I'm not precious about that sort of stuff at all. But you know, when you come here, you do then appreciate what we normally have. It's, do you know what? It's been good. Everyone's been in really good spirits. It's been so much better than I thought it was going to be. You always have that nervous anticipation about, especially an experience like this, where, you know, the whole hotel's locked down. You've got security fences everywhere. You've got security on every floor. You can't go anywhere without your masks. You get in quarantine when you arrive. Everything's checked over. It's quite a nerve-wracking experience in week one, Um and I think there's definitely like you could sense it in the air with everybody arriving. Yeah. But yeah. a group of us that have stayed, it's been really good. Like everyone's really enjoyed it. We've had a lot of fun. Spirits have been high. Like weather's been good almost all of the time. And um, I genuinely think everyone walk away from it feeling like it will be a positive and like a memorable experience. So, yeah, it's been good. Well, hopefully the uh, obviously the, the need for a bubble will be once in a lifetime. But I think my first question on the, the subject of the bubble, the idea of this kind of biosecure bubble has suddenly sort of been dropped into like everyday parlance, particularly in sports. You know, the idea that sports can only go ahead if everyone is trapped in a bubble. And it's, it's almost like the public is expected to know what that means straight away. So, I mean, how, how secure is it? Are we talking right down to the you know, the hotel staff, um, the, you know, the transfers between the hotel and the, um, and Maskell's itself. Are there any kind of, I guess, not loopholes, but, you know, how, how kind of watertight is it? 
Yeah, I know you mean any leaks. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't say so. So I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. That, so so you can't get out of the hotel, first of all. Um, and if you were to leave, you wouldn't be back, allowed back in. Um, so they've got security right. at the door and it's kind of like a, a fenced tunnel that goes into um, into the hotel. There's two halves of the hotel, so they're still functioning to the public, but it's all completely sealed off. So we haven't even seen there, so I haven't seen any members of the public, um, like kind of two layers of like fences and stuff between us and them. And then we've got essentially, I think it's two corridors that are again locked off, security on each corridor. And then with, there is an outdoor area with a courtyard and there's a gym and then they've turned two conference rooms into a training area and then as you've probably seen for the pre-shows the, the media area where we film uh, the way in the press conference and then we did before the bell there on Saturday or Friday because yep. of the weather yep. um, at Mascot. so it, it's that and then they've they've got a perimeter fence around a big area of grass just so that we get somewhere to play sport and kick a football around play some cricket stuff like that um, but you can't get out anywhere it's completely sealed off so the only like I say all of their staff are tested and there is one designated member of staff for us each day who is tested and they bring us, they'll just do the food run. So we have food that's already bagged up, um, which I guess has been brought in securely and you just call up order and then they'll bring it to your door and they leave it outside your door. So you don't even see them. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. So, but, but don't get me wrong. I make it sound like prison. It's fine. Do you know what I mean? Once you, once you're tested and you're cleared, everyone's got you all clear. You can then move around, outside your room but as long as you've got your mask on um, and your social distancing stuff like that and um, so even though you know everyone's covid free they still expect you to be sort of reasonably sensible and of course um, yeah you know. yeah yeah okay I, I saw a great um, a great tweet i think it's from um if i remember alex reed um a uh, sports journalist and he said there's something very um hunger games about kind of locking everyone up in a millionaire's um, back garden and making them fight for the for everyone's entertainment and I thought that that kind of summed it up quite nicely for what's a, a fairly surreal experience I think for, for a lot of people involved. I think the closest experience that you get to that is probably Monte Carlo where mm. I mean it's not even millionaires row it's billionaires row isn't it you go out there it's the richest principality per capita in the world and you know the atmosphere there is quite muted you're not getting a lot of cheering and stamping and shouting and there's certainly no fighting in the crowd as there is at a normal show so right. that's you know, and that's in, I think it's the most expensive casino in the world. So when you go somewhere like that, that genuinely feels a bit Hunger Games-ish. Whereas this, this is actually a different experience, to be honest. It's, it's, um, it is surreal, but I mean, it's a beautiful setting. You know, you're not going to get a more beautiful country house than, than, uh, than the Hearns. You've got a view of London. It's open, um, very green, very peaceful. Um, and, and I think everyone's kind of excited. Like A, just because we've all had a good break. B, we're back doing what we love and, and see like it's different, but it's different in an exciting way. Like I think people were, are cherishing the moment and savoring it because they know it's not going to happen again. And you sort of catch people's eye and there's just a special feeling of, wow, we're not going to ever experience this again. And the world is watching us and this event and this, this four weeks. And there's probably only about 200 people in total over the last month who are going to ever be able to look back and say, I was there and I was, on the inside of that and um yes i think we've all realized how special it is
Moving on to the actual fights themselves then uh, this weekend, obviously it's the big uh, it's the big one, the culmination of fight camp itself. I think we'll start with the headline, or the male headline, in, in terms of getting your uh, your views on it. Uh, White Povetkin, um, White is obviously a pretty heavy, I wouldn't say heavy, uh, he's a pretty firm favourite to beat Povetkin. But for me, there are a few, there are a few kind of red flags He's there's there's been a bit of upheaval. Um, obviously, a change of trainer away from uh, Mark Tibbs moved to um, Xavier Miller. Um, came out an announcement today that Dave Caldwell has been added to the corner as well. What are your thoughts on on that kind of new setup and and how has he kind of looked um, from your observations? Um, yeah, I, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? There's there's a lot of imponderables. Um, I think from from what I've heard. Uh, Xavier Miller is a very good coach and I think it's very easy to dismiss somebody that sort of pops up as new on the scene without knowing too much about them um, he, he, I think he went to school in America and he was taught um, in the kind of I think the foundations of his philosophy are kind of in that Detroit model like a little bit um, little bit kind of like shell defence like slide, slip, roll like catch and catch and shoot off the shoulder um stuff like that lots of like long relaxed shots combination punching I, th- I think it requires a certain level of like conditioning balance and i'm not sure either of them come naturally to to dillian um but he's got um peter marcassiano and ruben tabaras out there with him so like i think very renowned strength and conditioning experts um so i don't think he would have lost anything in terms of that i know a lot of people were worried when he moved away from loughborough Yep. you know that element would drop off but he has actually built a decent team out there with him and I think Miller's been out there since uh, I want to say like when he first went out there which was like March right at the beginning of lockdown wasn't it because he drove out there yeah that's right so, yeah. so he's brought those people out there and I think they all realised that okay the fight date keeps getting pushed back so instead of coming home and then having to go out there again when we got a fight date set let's just stay here and use it as time to learn so I think He's actually probably had an underrated camp. I think a lot of people see the upheaval as a negative, but he's been out there with a set team and a good team of reputable people. Um, he's had his sparring partners out there, um, the, the usual guys that he takes out there. John Harding's been there the whole time as well. Um, so I actually think, and, and you know, he's been out, it, it's warm, which is good for the body, yeah. um, good for recovery, keeps your joints loose, um, muscles relaxed. So I, I think he might surprise a few people. Um and and he's had what since March, so we're coming up five months with Miller to actually, if there is anything fundamental that Miller's needed to work on, he's at least had the time to to do it. So, yeah, on the surface of it, White's coming in with a few imponderables, but actually he he should be at his best, particularly if they're effectively living on top of each other for a, a good stretch of that as well you'd imagine there's a decent rapport and, and as you say that's plenty of time to to formulate a plan and, and iron out any kind of kinks what people don't necessarily know about miller is xavier miller is that he was working with mark tibbs um for quite a while as a, as a kind of secondary pair of hands um so he would like let them use his gym um and mark knew him well and, and wouldn't mind him sort of working on the pads with dillian and so their kind of partnership goes back quite a long way. And I think there must have been uh, some sort of um, alignment with Mark 
and Xavier's philosophies on fighting. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked in the first place. So although obviously there's probably been some slightly uncomfortable um, transitions with, with Mark leaving and then Xavier taking over as, as head coach, but in terms of actually familiarity for, for Dillian, um, it hasn't just been this year that they've linked up. I think they've actually been working together on and off uh, for quite, quite a long time. And the addition of Dave Caldwell um, announced only on Tuesday of fight week. Uh, I don't know whether that's been kind of planned for much longer, but that can't really be, I think I'm right in saying that can't really be a negative in any way. That's, that's just an extra pair of eyes. That's an extra bit of experience for Saturday night. That's exactly it. I, I just, I called Dave as soon as it broke. Um, and he said that actually that's been on the cards for, for ages. So right. he said, Dillian spoke to him and they, they get on really, really well. So Dave's son, Theo, was, was really unwell around the time he took um, Jamie out to fight uh, Inoue. And he said, Dillian always checked up on, on Theo and, you know, called to see how he was and messaged him to check up. And they've always been quite close and got on really well. Um, and so I think, and obviously Dave's a great coach. He reads a fight really, really well. And I think, you know, Dillian just thought, well, if I'm going to have a couple of people in my corner just to have an, an extra pair of eyes that I trust, just in case there's anything that he spots that, that Xavier doesn't or just any extra suggestions, um, I think it's a very sensible choice. And, and also, not that it makes a big difference, but Dave's used to the setup. Like, he's been here for two weeks already, obviously, with Jordan and Hopi, gone home for a week with, with the family, and now he's back. So um, he will just be a nice, calming presence in that corner. Um, and I think a very good, what will seem like a random and a late addition, but actually, um, speaking to Dave earlier, it's been um, months and months kind of in the in the making. All credit to Dave for putting his um, unbeaten fight camp record on the on the line as well. I um, know, I know, I said that too. Yeah, <laughs> could have said two and out, and uh, yeah, see you, see you later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one one point I'd like to make on White is that, and I've seen it quite a lot of people saying. Hey, look, he, he, he looked horrible last time in, uh, in Saudi against uh, Maris Vak. Uh, and then, obviously, Rivas, he, he won. And I thought he, you know, he boxed well at times. But I, don't think, I think it's probably fair to say we haven't seen the best Dillian White since maybe kind of Joseph Parker. And I think something that some people are overlooking there is the, not necessarily the lack of preparation, but the upheaval and the distractions going on in the in the build-up to both of those fights. Do you think this will, will be something approaching the best Dillian White again, or, or or kind of do you think actually that what we saw was you know the best Dillian White against uh, Rivas and Wack, and, and actually it was just a poor performance on the night? And I'm I'm kind of reading too much into it. Um, I mean the answer is I, I don't know, but I certainly think he was very sharp against Joseph Parker. I think the VAC fight, obviously, was very late notice and he was very overweight. And, yeah. you know, he was clearly almost like he was just ticking over and took a fight against a guy that's very old and, and isn't a great threat anymore. Um, and probably, as you say, it's p people will judge you and judge you harshly based on your last performance. But if you're going to judge him based on the VAC fight, then that's probably a little naive because we know he can box better than that. Um, I think the Rebass fight is probably technically as close as you'll get to looking at the sorts of problems that Povetkin might cause him and the sorts of technical uh, issues he might have if he hasn't 
clean them up. And I would like to think that there's certain things that I've spotted from that fight, from the last couple of fights, that if I've looked at those, I'd be surprised if someone like Xavi Miller hasn't spotted them and, and mm. worked on them for the last five months. Um, and I think if he still shows those kind of flaws on Saturday, Povetkin, even though he's definitely slowed, and you see in the Hunter fight, just something's gone out of him. I thought he still looked all right against Huey Fury. I thought he still got his legs. But I thought against Hunter, he looked uh, looked like his punch resistance wasn't quite there. His feet looked just noticeably half a step slower. Um, and I think if you were to watch that in direct contrast with, say, his performance against Joshua, you're just starting to see those signs of decline. And actually, to be fair to him, he's not really declined in the last probably 14 of the last 16 years as a pro. So um, if he can dredge up something like his best performance and White hasn't made a couple of key adjustments technically, it's actually going to be a very interesting fight. It sort of feels like Povetkin's been 39, 40 for the last 10 years. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. people have always been writing him off and saying, look, he's over the hill and he's, he's consistently been a top 10 heavyweight during that time. Um, Oh, do you think yeah. a, a lot of people will look at this fight and say, well, it's, you know, it's the battle of the left hooks and it's a, a kind of a good style matchup in that regard. Do you think that's a little bit simplistic? And, and in terms of, you, you mentioned there the Rivas fight as a kind of comparable, uh, obviously against a slightly smaller man. Um, Povetkin against Hunter. Hunter was, a, well, I say was, is a little bit more mobile than than Dillian White or at least the last few kind of incarnations of White that we've seen. Do you think this, there's anything in it to say that this is actually a much better style matchup for Povetkin and that White will be there to hit? Yeah, I think there is. And it's definitely way too simplistic to say battle of the left hooks. I think sometimes like the, the broadcaster will just come up with a strap line because it's easier for the public to kind of hang on that. But yeah. technically, there's a lot to it. I mean, it, let's start with, start with Dillian White first. A few things that I think are, are crucial for this. I think the first thing he's... His jab improved a lot under Mark Tibbs, no doubt about it. He's varying the tempo of it. He uses it as a touch jab to measure range so that he knows where he is at all times. Um, he, he kind of uses it as a, as a bit of a power jab. He doubles it up nicely. He goes up and down with it. Stuff that he wasn't doing, you know, in the early days. But Mark has got him using that well. The one thing he doesn't do is, is bring it back to his chin. And when you're doubling it up against someone like Povetkin, that's fine. But if you offer Povetkin a sort of lazy single. He, he loves to drop. He doesn't drop outside the jab. He drops inside the jab and he comes over with that, that arc in right hands. Classic kind of Russian, Soviet style, turns the knuckles right over, gets the elbow right above the hand uh, and he drive that knuckle in. If that catches you on the temple over a lazy jab, I mean, you, you there's only so many of those you're going to take clean, especially if like Dillian White, you don't tend to take your feet back with you. So with Dillian, he hasn't got very quick feet and he tends to block shots down the middle by bringing his guard high and central, almost like sort of parries with his forearms. He's got big, solid arms. You think about when, uh, I think someone like second era George Foreman, when his legs are gone, but he had big, bulky arms and shoulders and, he and, and heaviness and weight. He'd, he'd go cross guard and he'd be able to ride shots and catch and block. But with Povetkin, like blocking centrally, he's not particularly bothered about that, that gap. He arcs his shots when you're moving laterally, when you step off, when you throw that lazy jab that doesn't return to its start position, or when you exit on a pivot, he'll, he'll let it go. Um, and so I think 
he, he's got to be really, really disciplined on that jab. And if he's going to throw it out on, on the single, he's got to expect that right hand is going to come over the top. I think he almost needs to feint, try and lay back and counter. But it's, it's whether he's got the ability to, to actually do that. Um, I think I'm he's got... Trying to, trying to remember, it was that overhand that was kind of signalled the beginning of that closing sequence against Price, wasn't it? For yeah, it was well, the overhand and then duck under. Yeah, yeah, and then the left yeah. hook. Yeah, and the thing about Povetkin as well, and this is where you have to be aware that if you're going to be a small heavyweight and you're going to make any impact on the division, you have to do something out of the ordinary. If you're going to look at, you know, Holyfield, Hay, potentially Usyk, they all have something a little bit special in terms of hand hand speed, reflexes, power. Um, and, you know, the size of the big men in the division, as they are, unless you are particularly explosive, sharp, high IQ, can set traps, you're not going to cut it in the division as it is at the moment. Um, and I think Povetkin, the thing about his um, combinations is that they're very unorthodox. So you look at, I think the higher up the weight divisions you go, the more predictable combinations become to the point where you get up to heavyweights and most of it's jab, jab, right hand, jab, right hand, left hook. And that's pretty much it. Bit of body work on the inside, but it's quite slow. It's quite predictable. And you look at the three guys that are at the top of the tree and they are that little bit sharper, that less, that less orthodox mm, yeah. um, and that more powerful. With Povetkin, what he does is he actually leads off with any hand. So he can lead with a left hook, he lead with a right hand to the body. He'll go high and low. He'll spring into range. He'll sometimes double the left hook as he comes forward. Um, he'll finish uh, combinations with a screw jab up the middle. He'll uppercut you when you're on the pivot. Like mad stuff that you just don't really see in, in heavyweight boxing. You see it in some of the other weight divisions, but that's what makes him dangerous. And because of the way he turns through the shots, and he's a solid, compact guy that, that turns his weight through the punches, his accuracy and his timing makes him a very, very dangerous fighter. Um, and so for me, sometimes when Dillian switches off and can get a little bit lazy, that's where he's going to be, uh, I think, in danger potentially on, on Saturday. You spoke there then about, I guess, the keys to victory for Povetkin. What does White need to do to, I mean, obviously it's a big risk for him, full stop taking this fight with um, with the WBC position that he has. But this is a, a potential banana skin, isn't it? What, what, how do you think he'll approach it? 100% of potential banana skin. If you're not on it, Povetkin's gonna he's going to beat you and he's going to hurt you. But I think understanding the way that Povetkin fights is, is key to victory. Um, he is going to be 41, I think, in September. And one of the distinct patterns that has been noticeable for me the last couple of years is he his tempo has slowed. And what I mean is he's taking more breaks between his work. Um, yeah. And... It, he does it well, like to the to the untrained eye. You wouldn't watch him and think, oh, he's he's got a low work rate. He'll fight in little bursts. He'll come in, he'll drop a shoulder, he'll faint to the body, come up with a left hook, and then a shot a short shot through the middle, and then he'll hold. Um, but then he won't throw again for another twenty seconds. He'll step off, and he'll be on the edge of punching range, and he'll catch shots. He'll parry. He'll he'll kind of faint. He'll he'll throw the odd kind of half jab just to let you know he's there. And then when the time he's right, he'll slip and come over with that right hand, or he'll, he'll duck and and whip that left hook over the top. And then he'll step off again, have another twenty seconds, and he'll really work in probably 
four, maybe five little bursts of two, three punches around. Um, so you're not going to get more than 15 punches from him, maybe 20 on a, on a big round. Um, so what you need to do is, for, for me, is let him work and then go straight to work once he's finished punching because that's when he wants a rest. And that's when you need to work to the body. You need to push him back. The other thing with Povetkin, he never really punches going backwards. You notice all of his shots, his, his weight's on the front foot, he's coming forward, he launches into shots and that's where he gets his power, he springs up. Because he's normally the shorter man, he's got the advantage of being able to dip low, draw, draw the hands down of the opponent as he comes in, spring up into the shots. But if you can let him work, take a step off, or ride the shots and then come straight back at him, make him work when he's trying to have a breather. I think that's going to be quite key. Um, I think White needs to almost always double up that jab and I think mix up those jabs. Be really careful when he's jabbing that he's not stepping to the left too often because that's when the right hand will come over the top. Um, and I just think, you know, at, at all times, just be aware. Like if you're going to step right, if you're going to step left, get the earmuffs on because Povetkin's not going to throw straight shots down the middle when you're moving left and right or if you're on the turn. He's going to throw looping wide shots. And the danger with that is we saw with White, I think when Joshua first caught him, kind of arced the right hand over. I think it might have caught him on the temple and that's when his legs went. And that's yep. that was when he unraveled. And I'm not saying that's going to happen again on Saturday, but with the type of shots Povetkin throws, if he's going to get caught, he's going to get caught probably on the side of the head as he's moving left or right. Um, so yeah, that that for me is the the basis of his uh, of his game plan. It's not just the punches, but it's actually knowing when to work in the rounds. And I think you've got to work when Bevekin wants the rest. Moving on then, Chris, to I guess the co-main event, or at least the chief support, um, Taylor Persoon uh, rematch. Now I know you were uh, you were ringside. You were uh, in inside uh, Madison Square Garden. How did you score that first fight? Um, I think at the time, instinct was that Pursun had, had won it, didn't score round by round. Um, it just felt that Katie made it a lot harder for herself than she needed to. And I think of the 10 rounds, you'd have to say Pursun won six of them. Um, I do think there's a lot of very scrappy rounds. And I also think that it's the part of the wider conversation that, you know, is, is going on about women's boxing with the two minute rounds at the moment. Not only is it, um, making it harder for them to, to get stoppages when they're getting on top because they've only got two minutes to, to close the show. But also makes it quite hard to score rounds because if a fighter wins the first minute of a round, another fighter wins the second minute of a round, normally you get that kind of deciding 60 yeah. seconds of which to, you know, one fighter may, might get on top and, and open up and land the cleaner shots. You can say, yeah, they've edged it. But two minute rounds doesn't give you a lot of time to, to judge um fighters on so you know I know people were complaining about it and saying oh, it was a robbery and everything else but actually watching it back I watched it back last week gen genuinely a very close fight Pursue misses a lot of punches and when you look at her face at the end of the fight I mean god I didn't realize I haven't watched it back since last when we were actually there I didn't realize how bad her eyes were her whole head her whole forehead was like one hematoma huge hematoma above her mm. eye um she was she was bashed up and just it's difficult because she wasn't moved by a lot of Katie's shots, but you, you can't say that, that looking at her face at the end of that fight, that there wasn't a lot of damage done. Um, so that has to be factored in. Um, but yeah, I did think Delphine probably did enough to, to, to win it. 
Um, and I'm glad that we're going to see the rematch because I think she deserves it personally. I think I've always been a bit of a kind of unreliable narrator um, with this fight because I was I was actually on holiday um, quite kind of annoyingly in, in a sense and I was struggling to watch find somewhere to watch this uh, the pay-per-view I didn't have my laptop or anything and there was no it wasn't available in the in the room or anything so I was, I was on my phone trying to find a way to watch it and the the feed I have was, was cutting out every you know every so often I mean at the time I felt that it, it did feel a bit like Pursue might have edged it, but again, I couldn't couldn't score it. Uh, and I watched it back when I got home from from the holiday, and I think I scored it a draw. But yeah, at the same yeah. time, and I, I touched on it in a, in a previous show, when you're watching or when you're scoring, kind of in hindsight, when you know who won and when you know what everyone else's scorecards are. My, you know, me scoring at a draw then is, is pretty worthless, I think, because there's no way that I can't have been completely, not completely, but in, in some way swayed by the outcome. So I think it's, it's quite true. I, I never got a chance to, to watch that fight from kind of point zero, if that makes sense, which is a bit of a frustration. Let's focus on Taylor first. How do you think she should approach the second? It always felt to me that there was an element of surprise in, in, in some ways at just the kind of sheer relentlessness of Persoon in the first fight. And it was that kind of um, almost bull rushing in a sense that, that Taylor really struggled with and she didn't have a chance to, um, to kind of reset and, and, you know, box like she can do. Do you think Persoon's going to do the exact same thing because that's all she knows? Or, or do you think there's an alternative um, kind of strategy that uh, Taylor and her team need to be prepared for here? First of all, you're absolutely um, spot on. And the one thing that you never have in the rematch is, um, is the element of surprise. So, you know, if you can get on somebody's chest and they can't move you back and they can't really hurt you with shots, um, you know, I, I think Katie probably thought, like we all did, you watch Delphine on the pads and you watch a previous contest, you think she's so slow and... Mm. She, she's got her elbows out and she punches. She's wide open to the body. Head movements really slow and predictable. Um, reaches with her shots. She's got this kind of tick where she'll go plod, plod, punch. She thinks this is going to be the easiest fight ever. How, how is she champion? Well, you found out how she's champion. And look, I always say the same thing. But boxing's a funny one. Some people are way better than they look. And some people are nowhere near as good as, as they look. And that's just one of the weird imponderables about boxing. And I don't think you can ever quantify for someone's physical strength, their ability to absorb punishment and their will to just march forwards. And if you can't put a dent in them um, and you haven't got a plan B, that's, that's basically where Katie found herself. And I think she probably, because of all the available footage, Katie probably just thought, I'll step off, set traps, make her miss and lunge into mid-range, counter her with that classic sort of slip, right hand, left at right hand, and then pivot off. But I don't think she backed on Pursuing being anywhere near as physically hard to put a dent in as she was. I think as well, Taylor gave up ground way too easily, which is something she's got to not do in this fight. If you're going to step back in a straight line, don't step back more than once. Twice at the most if you're going to set a trap for a counter, but step off, pivot into space. Like we saw in the first round, Pursuing will sling hooks at you when you're on the turn. So you've got to get used to step back once and then exit low, roll out after you punched. Stay low on the exit because you keep getting caught stepping out high. Um, 
if that's not working, you've got to go to her and tie her up better than she did in the first fight. She, Katie in the first fight, up close, she wasn't really committing to the clinch. She was sort of half grab one arm, didn't get close to Pursoon, let her work away with her free arm. She's got to like tie her left hand up tight, bend it in, press her head into her neck hard, bend the knees, get low, use that center of gravity because she's a shorter woman in there. So in the clinch, get your head under her chin, tie her arm up hard, twist it and move her. You know, you've got, you've got the advantages. Um, and then turn her so that you've got space behind you so that when the ref does come in and separate you, you've got space to move and, and do what you want to do. But she was stepping back in like, straight lines like three four steps back well where are you gonna where are you planning to go because you're not throwing punches you're not setting shots up and then suddenly you touch the ropes and pursuing actually quite good at cutting off the ring so you have to make sure that if you take a step back step right step left um and yeah just it was i, I think you're right she was so overwhelmed so early and just assumed, oh, I'll ride this storm out. She'll slow down because she can't maintain this pace. I'll eventually put a dent in her and then I can get to work. And because that never happened, she was never really able to adjust. Um, so she has to come out more positive this time. She's got to be prepared, not to do the like the Fury Klitschko dance for 10 rounds, mm. but got to understand that she's going to have to pot shot and move for 10 rounds. Like you're not going to be able to stand and trade with her. And if you are, you're going to take so much out of your tank just to just to kind of almost satisfy your own ego. And what's more important at this stage, ha hanging on to your titles or, you know, getting involved in a scrap that you don't need to just for the sake of wanting to outwill your opponent. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything, there's any worth or any value in doing that. That said, I do think Taylor gets a bit of a hard time for the first fight. I mean, for a fight that was that close, I, I don't, you know, obviously I, I think I, I had no argument with a draw. Pursuit, I think for most people, edged it by a round. But Taylor edging it by a round, you know, we, we've seen it in the past couple of weeks with um, Harper and Jonas and uh, Courtney and Ball as well. In the, a fight that is that close, you can't really make too much of a, a, a protest if, even if the fighter who the, the kind of majority seemed to edge there were kind of cries of robbery and it, it was certainly far from that. Um, yeah. here's, the, yeah. here's my thoughts. And this is not, I don't, how do I put this? Not, not a huge number of people know how to actually score a, a fight in that. Yeah. How many people are actually watching a fight at home with a pencil and a bit of paper and columns? They're going on a gut feeling. They're not really keeping a tally in their head. They get to about round eight and they think, yeah. I feel like this person's winning. Therefore, I'm just going to say, oh, I've got them 5-3 up or whatever it is by that stage. The difficulty is, is that judging a fight on a feeling at the end of 12 rounds and saying, oh, I think it's roughly this many rounds for this person and that, this many rounds for that person. For me, that's so inaccurate because you know as well as I do, you have to judge a fight based on, you know, in, in the women's case, 10 individual blocks of two minutes so looking at tash and terry um very very close fight probably tash wins it by one but you can definitely find five rounds for for terry well if you're just judging that as a block of 20 minutes well, tash definitely wins and i don't think many people would dispute that i don't even think 
Steffi and Terry would necessarily dispute that. If you judge it on just a block of 20 minutes and did it as a percentage, who had the most uh, of that fight? Tash probably wins something like 55-45. But you're not. You're, you're judging it in 10 divided blocks of two minutes. And it's a very, very different thing. Is it, is it a flaw in the, in the system? Yeah, probably. I think it could be more accurate. And, and I don't think you always get to the, the final bell and feel like you've the score is an accurate reflection of actually what, what went on. Should there be more waiting on the rounds? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, does every round tell the story? If, if, you know, like Lomachenko and Campbell, Lomachenko probably won every single round. But does, does 120, 108 really tell the reflection of a number of rounds, which Lomachenko probably only won 60, 40, some of them 55, 45? Um, no. And so it's very easy for someone like Luke at the end of that to feel really aggrieved and go, well, how can it be 120-108? Well, because you've just got a base. It's pretty binary, you know, 10 for, 10 for the winner of the round, 9 for the loser of the round. So that's that. And so I get why people cry robbery, but I do think they cry robbery more because, you know, there's a history of corruption in boxing and because on their gut feeling, one fighter has won a contest. But it's it's more complicated than that. A lot of it is down to narrative. And if I remember, Pursoon ended that fight so strongly that by the time the final bell rings, you think, well, yeah, you know, she she is the winner. But yeah, people have short memories. Um, it's a point I try and make sometimes that you you can have a one twenty one oh eight, and every round decided on a knife edge. Similar to what you were saying there against Lomachenko Campbell, but imagine a much, much closer fight. You know, I, I thought Lomachenko won that well, but it, imagine a fight that was, that was so close. If every single judge just went the other, do you know what I mean? It doesn't take much. Taylor and Progray, you know, you've got yeah, yeah. very, very close rounds. Well, if you just happen to think that Progray won every single round, then you're going to get 120-108, which is obviously nonsense. And this is why... You know, you, you kind of think, is there actually a better way of scoring? And look, the way the amateur boxing um, scoring has changed, so why can't we collectively review the way the professional boxing has changed? You know, we update. People will say, well, that's how it's always been done. Well, that, that's, if, if we work society like that, then we'd never learn or change anything. Um, you know, we, we learn from our mistakes. And I do feel like when... Change always happens after enough public outcry and enough discussion to say, okay, something needs to be done about this. And I'm personally getting quite bored of hearing people talk about robberies and, and this and that and the other. And actually, you can say, oh, it's corruption, or you can look at the system and go, actually, the system itself is not great. And there's got to be a better way of representing what we've actually seen than this 10 points for you, nine points for you. What, who's decided that that's, that's it? Is it? That's the, that's the most advanced the scoring system's ever going to get. I think it's nonsense. And I think, you know, we're at a point where, you know, it, it's, it's definitely worth um, some sort of review. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just feel fighters would be happier. Fans would be happier and it would be less um, liable to sort of corruption as well. I think in a funny way it may get worse before it gets better in a sense because the way that women's boxing at the moment is improving so quickly uh and you know all, all being well that will continue to happen over the next five ten years unless there, 
there's a couple of kind of floating factors here, but unless rounds are increased in, in length from two, two minutes to three minutes, and unless there's a change in glove size and so on, then you're going to get more and more high-profile women's fights going the distance. Yeah. And at the, the kind of knock-on effect is that is you're going to have conversations like exactly like we've had the past couple of weeks with Harper Jonas and, and Courtney Ball and Taylor Pursuit one that people are just going to argue about if they don't necessarily agree with how it's gone. Yeah, well, I, like I spoke to Shannon on um, Saturday, and she said, oh, I definitely won the fight. I said, well, I said, look, I said, you have to remember that you got knocked down. I said, in an eight-round fight, you've got an awful lot of work to do just to level that out. You're essentially two rounds down with one knockdown. So you, the most you can be right by round four, even if you win the following two rounds, is level. So, you, so, so you'd have to win, you know, two and three to get to four, to get to basically the halfway point and just be at zero. I was like, so you have to then say to yourself, well, did you win more than two of the last four rounds? Um, and that's the simple fact is that, again, you know, A, two-minute rounds, giving you a lot less time to put the punctuation on your work. And B, if you get knocked down, you've got a lot less rounds to actually even up scoring and get, get things back on level terms. So a knockdown becomes far, far more beneficial to the fighter that scored the knockdown than it does um, over 12 rounds. So, yeah, lots of things to think about, really. And, uh, and like you say you know if these kinds of conversations keep coming up at the end of every 10 round fight for, for the women's the, the change is going to have to be made at some point yeah I, I had it um shannon uh, 76 75 i think i think what she just thought she just nicked it in the end but yeah. you can't you can't really have any argument when, like you said it's the it's the eye-catching stuff for especially when it's a single ref as well it's, it's a single judge um yeah, that and that was wrong too. Yeah. Ref, ref has got one job in there, and that's the to maintain the safety of the fighters and, and adjudicate the rules. They, they should not be refing at the same time. And I was quite surprised. I looked at Darren. I didn't realise that uh, we didn't have it on our notes that the ref was also the judge. No, it, it didn't cross my mind. And, and you know, and I, I bet on that fight, but it, it didn't cross my mind until quite late in the week. And I thought, shit, that is a bigger yeah. factor than I thought. Yeah, really, really poor that. And um, and so I think at least at least if you've got three judges telling you it's gone the same way, especially for Shannon, you know, three judges are saying, okay, you've lost it by a round. She can at least look at that and hold hold on to it. But you know, it's uh, no, I think that is very poor, and that should never at that level anyway shouldn't you shouldn't be get like you get you've done white collar, haven't you? That the the ref yeah. is the judge. Um, uh, no, I, I actually had I had three judges for both of my. For both of my fights, which is a bit of a luxury. Really. Like high-end white collar, mate. Well, one, <laughs> one stoppage. Uh, no, second second fight was a split a split decision. But um, yeah, I, I don't I, I don't know how it was a split decision. I knocked I knocked him down twice in the first round and got a ten. No, free you got a split decision. Absolute robbery, mate. Mate, it was it was he was the home fighter as well, and the whole arena nah. was cheering for him. And I, <laughs> Nick, I well, I mean, I, I won clearly, but. Um, yeah, what, what, what can you do? Would you ever do it again? Because I'll, I'll do your corner if you want. If you ever do it again, I'll be your corner. All right, mate. I'll, I'll hold you to that. I, <laughs> I actually got asked about it. The um, the promoter contacted me a couple of weeks ago, and he must be struggling for fighters coming out of lockdown or something, because I haven't fought for, I don't know, what, three years ago now. Um, and he said, are you fighting this year? Any any chance I can tempt you out? And I said, no, mate. Look, if, if you need me to commentate or, or judge, I'll be happy. But um, I'm feeling a bit old at the moment. But never yeah, say too. never. 
Chris, we'll leave it there. Um, before you go, I wanted to just touch on a new project that you've got coming up. And I think for anyone who's listened to the past few minutes on the show and, and liked what you or kind of liked the sound of what you were saying in terms of the technical analysis, uh, they might be interested in this. Do you want to tell the listeners about that? Yeah, so uh, Carl Franson, he's kind of already looking, I think, at what we're going to do life, you know, life after boxing. So we've gone into business together. Um, we're a great audience for TKO and Joe over the last 18 months. But Joe went into liquidation, uh, went into administration um, early this year with, with the uh, pandemic. So we've gone into business together, just setting up our own new show. So we're in the process of getting financed um, and I think we'll be ready to go in the next four to six weeks. Um, he's on holiday at the moment. I've got to get fight camp out of the way. And then um, we're just going through some final uh, bits contractually. And, uh, and yeah, so it's called Inside Fighting. Got a Twitter page up and running, YouTube, um, Facebook and Instagram. So give them a follow. It's Inside Fighting. Um, and yeah, we're doing sort of more technical breakdowns. I think there is a bit of a gap in the market for that. Some really good people doing it. I, I really like um, some of the stuff that Lee Wiley uh, does. We... I, kind of see fights in a very similar way to, to how he does and he's doing some great work but I think um, there's there's room for some more sort of technical analysis and some of the videos we put out in the last you know three to four weeks just really simple breakdowns of some of the great fighters little subtleties that a lot of people just don't really know about and that's for me my that's my bread and butter um, and I love it and people seem to really enjoy it so um, it's going to be a bit more of that we're going to be doing um, the same kind of in-depth interviews we're doing on TKO with people from different sports um, and just having a bit of fun with the show really so yeah Inside Fighting will be launching hopefully in the next sort of month and a half Looking forward to it Chris um, thanks very much for, for coming on the show mate it's been a, it's been a pleasure no, Thanks mate and sorry it took so long but I'll, uh, I'll come on any time and I'll try and be a bit more reliable next time <laughs> You say that now <laughs> You're listening to the Boxing Betting Show. Very pleased to welcome to the show next boxing journalist and pundit, a familiar face to uh, particularly British fans, uh, Steve Lillis. How are you, Steve? I'm good, Tom. Thanks for having me on the show. I wondered when my chance would come to um, get, get on here and speak to you. So it's, uh, it was nice when you invited me on a few weeks ago. And uh, let's hope we can come up with some uh, decent winners, shall we say. Steve, what have you been up to? Have you been keeping busy post-lockdown? No, I haven't been keeping busy, actually, like a lot of people, you know. But yeah. um, I still do one or two bits of work for promoters, PR and stuff. I've been doing a little bit for Steve Woods, VIP YouTube, doing some interviews. But uh, I'll be honest, not doing a lot. But you know what? I'm not going to complain. There's a lot of people worse off than what I've been. And uh, you know what? I, I, I just count myself lucky to have had such a great time in boxing over the last 30 years. And if I get another few years out of it, I'll be grateful. It's been, it's been, it's a sport that's been very kind to me, shall we say. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to moan when things aren't going as I perhaps like it. But, you know, but it's just great. You know, we still, we're still getting boxing every week on our TV through BT, Sky. You've always got Channel 5 coming back with a free-to-air show this week. And look, it's not, it's like football, cricket and any other sport. It's not ideal, Tom, that there's not crowds. But, you know, what do you take? It's better than nothing. So all these people that are, and moaning about about the various sports. Um, take a look in the mirror, give yourself a little slap and enjoy what we've got coming up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and what have you made of the actual fights themselves so far? Obviously, 
you know, some of the profile of the fights haven't quite been what we perhaps would have got uh, with crowds, but there's been some decent kind of fare in there as well, hasn't there? Oh, there's been some good stuff. I mean, the last week's show at your call, you know, there was, you know, there was performances in there where, you know, fighters, you know, we, we, you know, we've had great performances in the ring um, since it come back, like what Eggedon and Cheeseman left in, Zelfa, um, but we've also had fighters like, you know, Troy Williamson last week, who left questions to be answered. Archie Sharp, you know. Yeah. So there's, there's fighters who have been fighting in lockdown, where, you know, have also been left, you know, where people have been wondering, you know, what, what they're going to do now, what, whether they are going to kick on. So I, I've enjoyed all of it, to be honest. It was fascinating. And, you know, this weekend, I think it's fantastic for people who aren't buying the pay-per-view. Viewing figures that um, Sugden and Pitters will get this weekend on Channel 5 would be outstanding. It could be the most watched fight in Britain this year so far. It's going to get more people, you know, watching than the pay-per-view will this weekend, purely because it's on terrestrial free-to-air TV, yeah. even though it's not going to get um, a minuscule of the attention that Povetkin and Dillian White are getting. We'll move on then, Steve, from the fight that I think we can kind of both agree has gone under the radar a bit to the one that's getting all of the all of the attention uh, and the, the main event or, or the kind of the whole event really at, at Fight Camp, the last, um, the last in the series, obviously headlined by uh, Dillian White, Alexander Povetkin, um, Katie Taylor, uh, per soon rematch on the uh, bill as well. Uh, and a, a pretty solid, solid undercard. I mean, in terms of the, the domestic sort of matchups on there, one that caught my eye was um, Jack Cullen and um, uh, Chelly, which, which was put together fairly late or at least announced quite late I think it's an interesting fight in that uh Cullen is kind of you know he's he's come to prominence a little bit this year um yes he, he lost to Felix Cash but he's kind of established himself I think as a as a contender domestically um stepping up to 12 stone here isn't he but how do you kind of see that one going I think it's the best fight on the card I think it's absolutely a fantastic matchup um you know, I think Jack's been training, um, you know, for a fight because I think there was word a while ago he was going to be on the bill in some capacity. Um, so it was, you know, it was all, he always knew in his mind. And it's really exactly that um, steps up late. And I'm a massive, massive admirer of Zach Shelley. Him and his dad, Zach, Zach Senior, who is a, shall we say, a character. I don't know if you know Zach Senior, but um, he... he if you, if you met him once, you won't forget him. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> that they take any fight. I mean, this is someone, you get guys, he's, you know, 22. He only finished university a few months ago. Um, you know, guys like him, they usually would be having, you know, 15 and zero before they're, they're any test. I think yeah. in his fifth fight, he beat Umar Sadiq, who's now looking forward to a British title shot. His last fight, he, he, he lost to Cody Davis, but he still had Davis on the floor in that fight. Yep, and I think yep. Davis was nearer 14 stone than 12-7 in that fight. And in this fight, Jack Cullen, he might be six foot three or six foot four, but he, he's the man moving up in weight. Whereas, uh, you know, Zach Shelley's a, a weight where he's comfortable. Um, I'll tell you what, I, I know Zach's had a lot more experience. I'm not sure, is it 21, 22 fights? Zach Shelley's on his eighth or ninth fight. I've got a seeky suspicion for Zach Shelley here to go and win this on points. An absolute thriller. I mean, looking at the odds, um, I think the odds actually kind of reflect everything that you just um, said there, Steve. The bookmakers actually make it a pick'em. Looking at the latest odds, 
10 to 11 Chelly, so minus 110 in uh, American odds, 5 to 6 in places as well. Uh, and Cullen, 5 to 6, 10 to 11, Skybet going even money. So, Oh, I thought Cullen might have been a slight favourite. I, I thought you'd be going somewhere like 4 to 6, Cullen, 11 to 10. I, I really did there. Um, but they, there you go. I mean, um, I, I don't know if you've got you know, specific odds. I wonder what, yeah. the, what the odds would be. For Chelly on points after the after the ten rounds. Yeah, so Chelly on points um, as big as seven to two, uh, so plus three fifty is actually no even bigger. Uh, four to one bet Victor um, going on a Chelly decision. Uh, Cullen by KO uh, seven to two, and the favoured outcome actually is uh, Chelly by stoppage um, eleven to five best price two to one uh, more generally. I think the four to one seven to two. Zach on points uh, represents terrific value. I really do. I, I mean, I see it as a distance fight for sure. Uh, yeah, I know, I know Zach's got, um, you know, he's got, Zach's only got three KOs and three, three KOs in his, out of these seven wins. They weren't against the most testing opposition. And I think um, Jack Cullen's got nine, nine KOs in, in his career. So, of 18 wins. So, if anything, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be going, I, I, I would be going, um, Shelley on points there. I think it's a fantastic bet, four to one. Um, and another really well matched fight actually on the card down at welterweight, ten rounds for whatever the the WBO global belt. Um, I'm not quite sure what that is, but it's um, being contested by Luther Clay and Chris Congo. Interesting fight, I think. Luther Clay is an LCS to fighter, thirteen and one. Um, he's only lost once, and that was um, on the road and overseas uh, quite early in his career. Uh, Congo 11 and 0, 6 KO wins so far. The slight favourite, 5 to 6, um, minus 120, 4 to 6, 8 to 11 at its widest. Uh, and Clay 5 to 4, um, 11 to 10, and even money as well. So again, you're looking at what's effectively a coin toss. He, he might have let himself down in his career, but one of the finest readers of a fight in Britain is Frankie Gavin. Uh, who will be a hell of a trainer, by the way. Um, and he has been telling me about Chris Congo for some time. And he, he, he rates him as possibly one of the best fighters in Britain who's coming up. You really? know, he's like the best fighter nobody knows. Which is, and that's high praise coming from Frankie. As I said, he reads a fighter so well and reads a fight better than most people I know. You know, if I was struggling to pick a winner for a fight, I would go to him and ask him an opinion. He really knows his stuff. Um, you know, but he's had the layoff, um, Chris Congo. And with, with Luther, he has had that defeat. But you know what? He stepped up whenever, you know, whenever he's had to. You know, two fights ago, he went to Italy beating an unbeaten guy, Dario yeah. Morelli, or Morello, I think he was called. Now, I have no idea what Morello's value is. I know he was the Italian champion, but he was still 15-0. and zero. Last fight, he stepped up again against Freddie Kiewit, um I just think he, every time he's been asked to step up, he's had to step up. But this fight, as you say, it's a coin toss. I mean, if you gave me, a, if I was having a free bet on this, I'd, I, you know, I've got fr what Frankie says it in my mind, and I know that me. If he tells me that Congo must be a good fighter, the man I've got to go for is um, is Luther Clay purely because he stepped up and he's been more more active. I think he. Um, I think since Chris Congo last fall, he's had that Morello fight, a hard fight, the Kiwit fight. He's had good, tough rounds under his belt. He's won that global title. Okay, it might not be worth a lot, but he's won it and he's defended it. I, I, if, I was, if I was having a bet here, and I, it's, it's too tough to pick, 
I'd have to go. I'd have to go Luther Clay on points. Yeah, interesting. I think I, I totally agree. I thought um, Clay was actually. I thought he's excellent when he went to Italy. Like I said, I don't Morello. I don't think was all was all that. But you know, he he went. He dropped him a couple of times and kind of routed him on the on the cars, didn't he? And um, Freddie Kewitt is not. He hasn't been e easy for anyone. He's fought. Um, he, he's a you know he's a tough guy and and. and that was uh, where was that? That was a York Hall, wasn't it? Last year, um, yeah. And a, a, again, Clay just got it done. I think the the question for me here is obviously there's a big size difference. Congo six foot, yeah. six foot plus maybe. Uh, and yeah, and he's about five nine, five eight, five nine. Yeah. I think. Um, I, I'm kind of like you. I'm looking at this and saying, well, in in a coin toss, you go for the guy who's above even money, uh, and that that is in this fight, um, Luther Clay. But I'm, I'm just kind of wary that he that Congo will will switch it up, keep him on the end of a jab and, and just kind of really, really kind of play awkward. But I, I, I mean, I don't know if he's got that kind of attitude. I, I, it, it's interesting. Um, one, one thing I do know, Clay's got a desire. I mean, I was, yeah. I did an interview of him for um, a YouTube channel yesterday. And, uh, you know, he's got that desire. You know, he come here as a young lad from South Africa. You know, he's still a pretty, you know, he might have that, you know, South of England accent. Um, he still sees as a proud South African. And, you know, he's, he has had an easy life. Even now, he you know, might have this title and he's winning good fights. But he still has to work as a Uber delivery man to make ends meet. So he's certainly got the hunger there and the desire. Just, I, I, I get what you're saying about, you know, Congo's got the tools in his favour. I know a lot of people rate him, but I just think, that Luther Clay stepped up when he's had to. And it, it isn't, you know, it isn't one with a, it isn't a prediction with great conviction, but I'll have to, I'm gonna go Clay on points. Clay on points then. Um, seven to four uh, that he gets it done after the after the 10 rounds. Congo 15 to 8. The KO price is very quite a lot, actually. Congo three to one uh, and Clay 10 to one. I, I kind of you kind of see what they're saying with that really, because I, I I do think we're gonna see rounds here. Um, yeah, I do. I, I think if you have a strong fancy for either man here, I think you've got to go points. And, you know, they're, they're not yeah. the worst odds. If you fancy someone strongly to win the fight, you're not getting bad value, I don't think. Nearly two to one on both of them. And who knows, you, you might even get two to one on one of them come Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, you look at the, the fight to go the distance, it's two to, uh, uh, yeah, two to five, four to 11. So strong odds on, bookies reckon about 73% that it will and go the distance two to one that it won't. One bet that kind of, or one price really that stood out here was the uh, the draw, which was, I think if I was looking at the draw as a an outside punt on any of the fights on this card, it would, it would be this one. 20 to one down to 16 to one, only over 10 rounds. So that's, you know, yeah. it's quite a condensed stretch. Um, and for a fight that has two really kind of contrasting styles that is likely to yeah, be they have, distance, yeah. could could give you a, a run for your money, yeah. I think as well. You could do, yeah. I'm not, yeah, yeah. I always look at the draw odds, but I'll be honest. I'm one of those people who don't usually back the draw till well, seven or eight rounds in mm. if it's really close. And I might, you know, you can still generally get ten to one, twelve to one, can't you? If you yeah. got a close fight after seven, eight rounds. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not that brave. I'm not one of these people who do cash out bets, by the way. But I'm not a brave man who goes with <laughs> six money on a draw at twenty-five to one. Uh, on to the, the big rematch then, um, Taylor versus Pursoon, um part two. Steve, I'm interested to see how you, how you scored the first fight. You know what? I'm very sure I had Pearson just about winning it. 
But it, yeah. was, it was an absolute thriller, wasn't it? Um, you know, they were both cut up. Um, you know, as I say, you know, women's boxing um, was, you know, as bizarre, a bit of a crested away from lockdown. I remember that last round when, you know, you know what, Katie Taylor, you told me so much about that last round. She just dug, she dug in, didn't she? And uh, that last round, we, we, you know, we, we, when she dug deep, she could easily have been stopped in that fight, uh, that last round, if she hadn't. I thought she was superb. And I think with it back over here, the fight, you know, you know, oh, she's Irish. She, she's a very much the home fighter here. Um, Pearson's coming a bit later this time. I've got a little feeling Pearson will keep, um, sorry, Taylor will keep her title. And there might not be so much controversy this time. You know, like, like, like a lot, you know, a lot of rematches, you know, I, I you know, the, so often the person that wins the first one wins the second one, even if it's close. I've just got a feeling she'll, she'll you know, I think she'll have to go the 10 round distance again. I mean, not, look, it's going to take some doing to stop something like Pearson when there's only two minute rounds. You know, let's get that, you know, with yeah. a minute break in between. I, I just think she, she'll, she'll, she'll repeat. She'll repeat a, a win this time, but um, you know, we, instead of digging deep in, in the tenth round, she might be boxing her way to victory. Yeah, um, looking at the odds, then um, it's actually quite. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's a big contrast from last time. Um, I mean, Taylor, pretty obviously, has never not been the favourite in any fight, um, and usually, you know, the odds are kind of overwhelmingly in her favour. Um, but this is actually the biggest price there's ever been um, on her. She's uh, available from anything from one to four, so minus uh, 400. Um, but two to seven, one to three available with several firms as well. Um, Spreadex, uh, Victor taking on a little bit more. Um, one to three then, 75%. So certainly, you know, that's a firm, firm favoritism for, for Taylor. If you look at the first fight, which was, I think she went off about one to 12 favorite. Um, after opening one to six. So certainly the, the money isn't saying that Taylor will win this easily, um, which is why they haven't gone back to one to 12 on, in, you know, double figures. Taylor opened a bit bigger back in July. She was four to nine um, and uh, two to five, um, Paddy Power Victor, which felt a bit big to me. Um, it didn't last very long, actually. It got backed into one to three by the next day. Um, a person then 10 to three um, and nine to four, I, I just think Taylor is bright enough not to get involved. Pearson knows what she's got to do to, 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 to run her close and, you know, maybe get the decision. But I just think Taylor will do something different this time. And I think it won't be nowhere near as brutal as the first fight. And she'll, she'll take it quite handily after 10 rounds. I think there's a, a potential parallel, isn't there, with um, Joshua Ruiz, which was on the same night. And you saw what <laughs> Joshua did in the rematch. You just thought, OK, look, I'm, I'm staying out of harm's way here. Yeah, and that's what she'll do. She's got the skills to do that. We've seen her box of way to victory before. So, you know, last time she was at Madison Square Garden, the World Heavyweight title bill, it's hard not to get wrapped up in that. This time be a lot quieter, you know, a big bill pay-per-view on Sky, but there's not, you know, there's not going to be thousands in the audience. So, you know, there'll be a few officials ringside. I don't think she'll get involved, you know, pretty ill. She'll get involved if she sees if the opportunity comes and she can get the upper hand. But I think she'll just box away the more I think about it, talking it here with you, Tom, I think she boxes her way to victory. Uh, Taylor odds on then to win a decision, um, four to seven, so uh, minus 175 or 63%. Um, interesting uh, stat here, she's fought nine times over the 10 rounds, so she 
Her first 10-round fight was at world level. She fought and won her world title on the first attempt, as we know. Um, but she's only won by stoppage in two of those nine. Um, so seven out of nine have been decisions. Um, 70, what's that, 78%. Um, so compare 78% to 63% and it could suggest a little bit of value given how that first fight went, how close it was, yeah. how it ended. It you know, obviously went the distance. Um, Taylor, four to one for the KO. Um, Pursuit, uh, 11 to two, so plus 550 on the decision. Uh, as big as 12 to one for the KO uh, and the draw at 12 to one. I think, to be honest, anyone who backed the draw in the first fight um, could probably count themselves a bit unfortunate. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, one of one of those. Um, the distance uh, best price of three to one on, so about the same price as a as a Taylor win outright. So that feels about right. I, I do think that this is going to the uh, going to the scorecards for sure. Yeah, and I'll I'll have to go. Kay, as I said, cause you, you see where I'm going. It's Katie Taylor. So if you fancy about four to seven, not my sort of odds, but uh, I, I I'd go with that bet, Brilliant, and feel pretty confident it's going to come off. Moving on then to the the main event, White Povetkin. White is, interestingly, it's, or kind of coincidentally, a similarly priced favourite to Taylor. Um, about one to four, pretty clearly across the industry now. No one's really gone any shorter than that yet. Um, Betway going two to seven best price, but I don't think that's going to last. And I think the price would only go one way the closer we get to, to Saturday night now. One to four, uh, or four to one on rather, suggests um, 80%. Do you think it's clear cut? No, I don't think it's clear cut. I, you know, I, look, a lot the look, a lot depends here on what Povetkin has got left. Um, yeah. I know he's, you know, he, he's just about. I think he'll be forty-one in a couple of weeks' time. Um, you know, since he lost to Joshua, um, you know, he was dropped. You know, he he was competitive for in that fight for a few rounds. Um, since then. Huey Fury, he didn't really look great against, but, you know, look, he still won the fight, and Michael Hunter will make anyone look bad. I mean, he is the who needs him of the heavyweight division. Um, yeah. You know, when he, 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 he escaped with that draw, um, and, I, and I, I look at, since Dillian White lost to Joshua, he's beat um, um, Avika Bakurin, Dave Allen, Ian Lewis, and Derek Chisora, Malcolm Tan, Robert Hellenius, Lucas Brown, Joseph Parker, Derek Chisora, Oscar Chivas, Marius Vac. Now, would, would you put Povetkin in to beat all of them? Parker has never really, when he's had to win, he hasn't really won. You know, when he, when he we wanted him to put the foot down. You know, Rivas, you, you would have fancied him against. Vac was past it. The, 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 the model of Derek Chisora was this in at the moment. You know, I would have, I would have fancied him to beat everyone that Dillian White's beaten since Dillian lost that. Was it a British and Commonwealth title fight to Joshua five, six years ago? Yeah, um, I, think, I think there's a, a a strong argument that Povetkin would be White's best win if if he managed to get it done. Oh, without uh, a shadow yeah. of a doubt. I yeah. mean, you know, you know that it, it is purely, you know, you're you're, you're you know, you're not, you're not quite betting blind in this fight, but. You know, the, the bet I'd be looking at would be what was Povetkin on points for value, as a value bet. Um, purely, but you know, obviously, now take into account he's been around a long, long time. Um, you know, hey, look, 2004, he won his Olympic gold, I think it was, when, when Amir Khan got his silver medal. And he, he might have been nearer, 30, you know, he might have been around mid-20s, then he would have been. 
Um, you know, I mean, he was 17. Um, and you can, you can look at his record, you know, in recent times. Um, you know, he's beat Marius Vaku, you know, a fresher version of Vak than what um, White certainly beat in his last fight. He had the rocky moments against him, David Price. And you've got, you got to go back to the, you know, to maybe when he, when he knocked out Carlos Tackham back in October 2014 and Mike Perez just after that, May 2015, since he's had what we'd call absolutely, you know, wow wins. So it is, it is a long time. But I tell you what, if, if he's got something left, I think he gives Dillian White all the problems in the world. I really, really do. Povetkin, general uh, three to one underdogs plus three hundred. Uh, a couple of firms going eleven to four. As short as twelve to five um, plus two forty. So there hasn't been a lot of movement actually in the odds since the fight was first announced back right at the start of the year. Obviously, it's been postponed twice. Um, Povetkin, like, like you say, he pretty much always always brings it, doesn't he? He's and he's always dangerous. He's lost the Klitschko fight was was awful, wasn't it? But Obviously, he got the draw last time against Hunter. Um, Hunter was, I checked uh, back on the, the in-play odds here, Hunter was as wide as 1 to 25 on going into that last round um, in Saudi. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was yeah, harsh, on, it was harsh yeah, on Hunter, but you've got to take into account, Hunter's a nightmare to fight. I mean, yeah. they look, he, 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 he is who needs him club. He's not great on the eye, and he's a handful for anybody. You know, so, you know what? Even though he had to come through choppy waters in that fight and was maybe fortunate to get the draw, Povetkin, what Hunter's that type of fighter, mate? And I do think what we will see here, for you know, we're talking odds. I think what, what I think that this fight Saturday night, their styles make it a, a, a cracker. Yeah, you know what? I, when the fight was first announced, I, I I felt it was coming at a bad time for Povetkin. You know, he's forty nearly 41 isn't he a lot older giving up height giving up weight um but there are definite there are definite kind of question marks you know Dillian White wasn't didn't look good against back uh, as you said he was overweight he's had the UCAD issues but was kind of hanging over that fight in his prep um he's got a new trainer for this fight he's you know he's he's kind of certainly looking a lot trimmer 80% chance is a bit of a question mark and I my, yeah. my kind of confidence in that is has wavered a bit, I have to say. Yeah, you just got to look for value. And, you know, in this fight, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll, I dare say I'll have a small bet Saturday night. And I think, the, you know, the three to one in places for Povetkin is cracking value in what's basically, you know, okay, we can always have the draw, but what's basically a two-horse race. I think that's cracking value when you look, you know, you, you, you know, I think obviously a lot of that value is on... Um, so we um, say the performance of Povetkin against Hunter. I think I think the odds makers are reading into that, and uh, and and that's what they've come up with. But um, you know, an eighty percent chance made it an eighty twenty fight is really harsh. Yeah, um, Dillian is justified favourite, and uh, you know, if he wins, he'll deserve. You know, he deserves his world title shot. He's waited long enough. Uh, but he's up against a dangerous man who's got more than a twenty percent chance of uh, winning, and. You know, Povetkin is still a dangerous man, I believe, and he knows this is his last chance to loom for Povetkin. What would be the, the number, you're talking in terms of value, what would be the number that you would accurately put, in your opinion, I'd say, OK, I'd say you could be 65-35 fight. Mm. All the publicity over the next two, three days is going to be, you know, 
Dillian doing his trash talking, talking decapitations and all that sort of thing. Because one thing Dillian can do, and uh, as you know, Tom, it, with, with, bet, with, with, with betting boxing odds, um, it doesn't take big money to change odds, does it? No, no. And, and, and you know, because it's, right. it's an it's, it's a niche sport, and a lot, a lot of you know, odds makers might not be as confident in that as they are maybe laying football odds, where they, you know, they'll risk, you know, taking, you know, taking more money. So I think any money is likely to be for white KOs, that sort of thing. And it could push Povetkin out a little bit further. But uh, three to one Povetkin is fantastic odds. Uh, Povetkin seven to one um, for a decision. So 12 and a half percent, 13 to two for the stoppage. The bookies are really struggling to, to kind of pin down any, any method of victory specifically, yeah. particularly for the white win. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if white was to win, I'd say I wouldn't be surprised. Dylan, I'm not writing this off will be Dilly in a late stoppage. You know, giving Povetkin's age, miles on the clock, you know, it could all suddenly, you know, it's going to be a hard fight for sure for both men. So, you know, you, you, you wonder, could, could father time, you know, far, you know the, the miles and father time catch up with um, Povetkin late on? Uh, and Dillian forces the late stoppage. The, you know, the two bets for me, if you were giving me one bet to pick, I would go, I, I've got purely for the value, I, I'd back Povetkin outright. But, as a saver, I'd go Dillian to win late. Maybe you know, in in the in the, in the last quarter of the fight. Uh, White in uh, seven to twelve, three to one odds on that. Um, yeah, that's, that, they're, they're the two bets then for me. Hey, look, Dillian could you, you know you got to take into assume that you know the one the one thing that could make Dillian win you know win early is if um, Alexander Povetkin is totally shot. You know we. Hey, fighters go over now. How many great fighters you see get in the ring one night? They go from a jab. But I think it, 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 Dillian late, Povetkin outright would be my bets. Uh, just run through the, the others then. Uh, white stoppage uh, at, at any time is uh, 7 to 5 um, plus 140. Uh, you can get 11 to 10 at the very worst, 11 to 8 around. Um, anyway, the point is that it's all slight odds against uh, that White will stop um, Povetkin and the same with a, a decision, um, six to four. So you can tell this traders are kind of struggling with this a little bit. The fact that they, they're not, you know, nothing is the, you know, n nothing is really strongly fancied in the methods. White, 18 KOs from 27. So about two thirds overall, um, he does win by, by stoppage or has won by stoppage. But three of his last four, since stepping up to sort of world level-ish or kind of, you know, close to Parker and Rivas, Chisora um, rematch. He's won all of them by unanimous decision. Um, that includes uh, Wackard as well, who I think you know is a, a level below that. But I think so. I think that's interesting. I, I, I'd be looking for if there is a bit of a rush on the the white stoppage, and that blew up the white decision. There might be a little bit of value um, in, in that as well. It, should that get bigger than the six to four? distance fight again the bookies are really struggling four to five that it doesn't go the distance 10 to 11 that it does so it in a sense you're kind of looking at pickums and, and coin tosses right through this card i think a lot of people you know there's going to be all sorts of bets on on dealing white for sure but i think many people will just say i'm just going to keep it simple this weekend and go for white and taylor double outright about four to six that looks pretty bulletproof you kind of would, would you not agree would you would you kind of put people off that uh, yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, mean it looks yeah. bulletproof. Um, look, you know, four to six, that's your bet. Yes, your bet. You know, 
Katie Taylor, I do think wins and wins comfortable. You know, the Dillian yeah. White one, for me, is a lot closer than what the bookies have got. As I say, 65-35, I'm thinking here, looking at Dillian's record. I'm now thinking, is it 60-40? Um, Steve, we'll wrap it up there. I'm going to end with one final question. If I was to put uh, a pile of banknotes in your hand this weekend and you have to put out of one single bet um, on this card, what would that be? Oh, you've really put me on it now, haven't <laughs> you? You really, I can go Zach Shelley points. Zach Shelley decision. Yeah, okay. that's my bet. Okay. That's the nap. Okay, you, you heard it first. Uh, that is the Steve Lewis nap. That's the first on the boxing betting show. Um, he's gone for and I'll tell you what, you've got me in trouble because um, one of my closest friends in boxing, not just in boxing, but personal friends, is Jack Cullen's manager, Steve Wood. And while yeah, he's been yeah. talking this, he's been trying to get through to me. So... I'm going to be in big trouble from me and Jack's camp mate this week. You've got, you've got me, you've got me in trouble putting that on me today. So when, when they're not talking to me anymore, I'm going to blame you, Tom, and block you from all social media. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure talking to you as well, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. You know that. Absolutely, mate. Um, Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. It's been having my you pleasure, on. and uh, enjoyed being on the show, chatting to you, mate. That's about it for now. The show will be back in a few weeks once the end of year schedule starts picking up some steam again. I'm going to take a bit of a breather after the kind of a four week fight camp sprint. If you are getting involved um, on the action this weekend, please do gamble responsibly. And if you do like the show, please consider leaving a review on the App Store, uh, a like, a share or a retweet. And um, it all really helps getting on guests um, like the ones we've had on today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And until next time, stay safe, take care. And as ever, thank you very much for listening.